The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's where we'll be this morning. As we look to, as Ethan prayed, this life-giving Word, um, I, I, I pray that that's what we would do. I have a confession to, to make to you. Is um, I was preparing this week. Actually, two weeks ago when, when Greg preached in my place, uh, I had given him the option to take this passage or to do something on his own. And secretly, I was hoping that he would take this passage uh, because I've been preaching through 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for a number of weeks, and it deals with this issue of marriage and sex and singleness and divorce and all of these issues, and I had grown a little weary in it. And so I was thinking, Greg will take that and he'll finish out that chapter and then I can move on and I can come after Easter and start in chapter 8 and things will be great. And I wasn't sure even that morning when Greg stood if he was going to preach that passage or go to another. So when he instructed you to turn to a different part of the the Bible, uh, a little bit in me went... Oh, shucks. But this morning, I am so glad that I have the privilege of preaching this passage. I want you to know that that God has absolutely rocked me on this this week. I told Lana last night that this is a long passage. She said, do you want me to print your sermon out for you? I said, sure, just make sure you got enough paper in there because it's a long one. Um, and I was convicted overnight that I was trying to cram this in, hoping to get through with the, the chapter so that we could move on to chapter 8. And, and I want you to know that I'm committed to bringing this plane in to land early uh, for a layover so that this sermon will be delivered in two parts, part one and part two, because I believe there's enough here, more than enough here, that God wants to say to us. And so let's begin. Now, let me just read this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'll begin in verse 25. I'm going to read 25 through the end of the chapter. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now, it's important for me to say at the outset here that there is no validation of either marriage or singleness here. There is no validation of either or, or condemnation of either marriage or singleness. He's not saying one is better than the other. It's going to sound like that as you read through it, but he's not saying this is good, this is bad. I want you to hear that. I want you to know that. I'll explain more of that later. Verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. 
From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. This morning, I want to approach this passage that is obviously talking about marriage and singleness. And I want to, indeed explore for you and and show you what is being said in the text. What is Paul's original intent of the message to those in Corinth? But I want to then draw out the principles that are there and apply them with this question in mind. How do you make God-honoring decisions or choices when there is no God-given command? We've all been up against this, haven't we? We've all come up against things that are clear. I've never, in, in, in all my years, I was thinking about it the other day, almost 20 years of, of pastoring, uh, I've never had anyone come and sit down in my office and say, uh, Pastor, uh, I just want to tell you before I do it, uh, I'm going to kill my next door neighbor. I just want to let you know, just want to make sure that's okay with you. Never, that's never happened, you know. Well, his limbs are just constantly over my fence. It drops leaves and all this, and he won't clean those things up. And he's got this little yappy dog, and it barks. So I've just decided that I'm just going to off him, you know. It's never happened. You know why? Because people know coming in what the pastor's going to say, don't they? At least I hope they know what he's going to say. You cannot kill your neighbor. It is wrong. Thou shalt not murder. Okay, that's pretty well covered. But I have had numerous people come to me and say, Pastor, I'm thinking about taking this job, but I don't know if it's the Lord's will for me. What do you think? Pastor, I'm thinking about asking this woman to marry me, but I'm not sure if it's the Lord's will. What do you think? Pastor, I'm thinking about going to this particular school to study for this particular field, but I'm not sure if it's the Lord's will. What do you think? They come to me with that question because They can search the scriptures all day long and they will not find thou shalt go to the university of fill in the blank. 
They won't find it. So what do we do? How do we make God-honoring choices when there is no clear God-given command? And this is what we see here in this, this passage in a general way. Paul says in verse 20, 25, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord here. This is his point. He's not saying that, hey, they're, they're, you know, I don't have anything to say to you. What he's saying is exactly what he said earlier in the chapter. I know of nowhere that Jesus, when he was in his earthly ministry, spoke directly to this. I know of no verse that I can quote. I can't tell you exactly what the, what the Bible says here because the Bible does not speak here. This is what he's saying. Apparently, here in this particular setting, there was a group in the church that had gotten engaged, and then after they had gotten engaged, they had, they had gotten saved. And so now they were wondering, should we go through with the marriage? The reason they're wondering this is because there, were, there was also a group in the church of ascetics that were teaching them that you should not go through with the marriage. It would be wrong for you to go through with the marriage. Asceticism is the belief that we can self-discipline ourselves severely, and the more we discipline ourselves, the more spiritual or the more godly we become. This is what leads people to join monasteries. This is what leads women to, to become nuns. This is what leads certain people to try to escape the world because they think if I can discipline myself so severely, then I'll, I'll get rid of all the worldly temptations and I'll become very, very, very holy. And they're teaching this in the church, and so they're confused. They're, they're young believers. They live in a culture that is extremely pagan, filled with idols. Sex is rampant in the city. And they're coming to Paul, and they say, Paul, we don't know. We were engaged, but we got saved. Does this mean that we should get married or we shouldn't get married? What, what do we do? And so Paul says to them, concerning the betrothed or the engaged, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now what this means for us is not that we can just write this section out, that this is not the word of God. We should not treat these words of Paul as if they're not scripture. We don't have that option. In fact, Paul believes that these words are scripture. He believes that he's speaking for God. He says there in the same verse, who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. He believes he's speaking at the Lord's direction. He closes out this section in, chapter, in verse 40 when he says, I believe I too also have the Spirit of God. He believes that he's speaking for God. He believes that his words are the very words of God given that would be written and preserved. But he's simply in the moment giving this pastoral advice. What this means is, quite simply, that we cannot look at these and say, this is not Scripture. But nor can we say, this is command blanket in a way that would require everyone to remain single. It's not what Paul's doing. Paul is doing exactly what I do with a lot of you when you come to me and say, hey, pastor, what do you think? And I don't give you command unless there's a clear command from God on it. But when there's not a clear command, I say to you, well, this is what I think I would do. Or this is what I think maybe you should try. And I give you this pastoral advice. This is what Paul's doing. He's pastoring. He's shepherding his flock there in Corinth, even though he is in Ephesus. He's writing back to them and saying, 
as a pastor, I'm telling you that I think this would be good. This is scripture for us, true, inspired, inerrant, without error, from God. But in the moment, Paul is giving advice to his flock. Paul actually, when he, when he answers them, he actually agrees with the ascetics. He actually agrees with them that they should remain single, but he says they should remain single for very different reasons. He says to them, uh, you know, I, I think you should remain as you are, but he's going to go on and he's going to tell us some very different reasons for that. Now, oftentimes, just a point of application for us here, oftentimes we are like those ascetics. We believe that our problems are all wrapped up in our physical outward surroundings, our circumstances. That our problems have to do with the situation that we're in, what we're in or involved in or around. And if we could just change all of that, then things would go away and everything would be right. The problem with that is we put too much stock in something outside of us and outside of Christ to be our Savior. See, the issue is the problem is not out there. It's not your physical surroundings. The problem's in here. And the answer is not to get rid of that thing. It's to trust Christ. So many people are, are maybe here today, and maybe you're in this situation where you are indeed single. And you think maybe you're, you've always been single, maybe you're single again as a result of, of becoming a widow or, or divorce or something else. And you think, you know, if I could just find a spouse, if I could just find a wife, or if I could just find a husband, then all of my problems would go away. Everything would go away and I would be, I would be great. This is what my, my parents have told my older sister who's been addicted to drugs in and out of jail for the last 25, 30 years. If she could just find a man, I believe that would fix her problems. The answer's not out there. The answer's in Christ. Some of you in this room think that if you could just find a spouse, things would be well. Some of you in this room, you're married and you think, if I could just get rid of my spouse, right? <laughs> or if I could just have another spouse, things would be well and everything would be great. Some of you in this room think, if only I had kids. If I had kids, they would fill this hole inside of me. Some of you with kids are thinking, oh, if I could just get rid of my kids. Some of you are thinking things like, if I had a different job, if I lived there, if I could go to school there, the reality is you're just like the ascetics that think if you, can, if you can run away from your present circumstances, then in some ways it will fix all your problems. And the reality is you cannot fix your problems by running away from your circumstances. The only fix to your issues is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are desperately wicked, hell-bent and hell-bound, and you need for grace to interrupt your life. So, Paul says, I have no command from the Lord on this, but I'll give you my judgment as one who, by the mercy of the Lord, is trustworthy. Things that we should consider, Paul says. I'm going to give you two things to consider that Paul says, 
when, when trying to make choices and decisions where the Bible has not specifically or explicitly spoken. And then I'm going to give you one principle to live by today, and I'll come back and give you two more next week. Okay? So two things to consider, one principle to live by. The first thing that he says that we should consider is we should consider the present distress in which we live. This present distress, look at verses 26 and 27. He says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, what in the world is he talking about when he says this present distress? In view of the present distress, is he talking about something that's going on inside the church? Like, hey, we, we, don't, we don't really want to upset these ascetics. They have their opinions. So, you know, just to appease them, yeah, remain as you are. The reality is we sometimes make decisions like that in church, and it's wrong. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the present distress that Jesus warned them of. That in the end, things would grow worse and worse. In Mark chapter 13, verses 5 through 9, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, says to the disciples, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. He's speaking of when he would go away. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. There are, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. They're living in those days. They're living in those days when many Christians had been arrested and beaten and thrown into prison and executed. They're living in those days. We are disconnected from this. We can't get our minds around this because particularly here in the West, in this Western culture, we know very little of suffering. There's not one of us that went out of our house today in secret. There's not one of us who drove separate cars, leaving at different times, arriving at this place at different times all throughout the night. Sneaking in here, not turning any lights on, not using any sound system or any, any projection of any voices or any music, but coming secretly because we are afraid of what they might do if they find us worshiping this God. Not any of us. We can't, we can't fathom this because we don't know this. We come in ease. We can boldly profess did you see my new clothes I got for Easter? Going to the Easter service. Hey, why don't you come with me? Oh, yeah, well, all good. It's going to be a great time. We can boldly profess and come and worship our God because we know very little, if any, persecution. But they are living in these times. John 16, 2, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They're living in those times. They're within about 10 years of Paul himself being martyred. Paul's writing this 10 years from his death for following Christ. They're living about 10 years from Nero coming to reign. 
and the Roman emperor taking many Christians and sewing them inside animal skins and throwing them before wild beasts to see them ripped apart for sport. They are within about 10 years from Nero taking many Christians and putting them in suits of wax and hanging them in the trees as human candles for his garden parties. That's why Paul says, I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Paul's reasoning is this. With all of this, why? Why would you want to add marriage to the mix? It's one thing for you in the midst of such turmoil and and such persecution to have to care about yourself. It's another thing for you to take on a wife or a husband and to be caring for them in the midst of this. He says, so in view of this present distress, I think it's better if you stay single. Church, hear me. The reality is that the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more our days will come like this. I think there is, and I don't know this, I'm no prophet, but I think there are coming great days of persecution in America. We speak of persecution in America as if we're really being persecuted. And what are we really being told? That we cannot pray at a government gathering. That we cannot pray in a public school. This is no suffering. We will know suffering when our family members are dragged off and thrown into prison. When they are executed for their faith in Christ. We will know suffering when we gather in secret to worship our God. And I don't mean this as a a judgmental statement, but we will also know in those times who are really His. This should be a consideration before we make any decision. We should even now look at this, these present times, what's coming to us before we make decisions. Does this mean, I think, that in today, that you, if you're single and you're thinking about maybe getting married, or we have some engaged people in our congregation today, that that maybe you should not go through with, with the wedding? No, I don't think that. And you'll see this as we go through the rest of the text. It'll really become clear next week. But I think before we make any decisions, whether it's marriage or job or moving or, or, or school or, or whatever the case may be that the Bible doesn't explicitly speak to, I think we should consider what's going on in the world and what's coming our way. This is Paul's point. And then he says the second thing that we should consider is not only the present distress in which we live, but the potential world troubles that the choice could bring. Now, this may sound similar, but it's a little different. He says in verse 28, But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This word trouble is a word that means pressed together or under pressure. It's a pressure cooker that marriage brings pressure. Quite simply, Paul is saying that any time you get two people together, two sinners together, you are a sinner, you bring a spouse into the mix, they are a sinner, that any time you bring two sinners together, the sin will be multiplied. And the problems will escalate. 
the limitations and the weaknesses of the flesh will show up like never before. John MacArthur, in his commentary, said, It's hard enough for a sinner to live with himself, let alone another sinner. When two people are bound together in marriage, the problems of human nature are multiplied. Now, at that point, don't say amen if you're sitting next to your spouse. Close living allows us to see our partner's faults more clearly and vice versa. He goes on and he says, It's not that marriage is not rewarding or that family life is just uninterrupted trouble. A loving and devoted and spiritual family not only is a great joy and strength to its members, but also strengthens and blesses those around it. Paul is simply pointing out that marriage may cause some problems while it solves others. And this is true. This is reality. Marriage is a blessing. Uh, this, this summer, I will have been married to, to my wife for 18 years. And, and don't look like I should be old enough to be married for 18 years, I know. I appreciate you saying that and thinking that, you know. Don't look like I should be old enough to have teenagers and all that, but I have. Marriage is a blessing. It's an incredible blessing. It is a joy. It is a calling. But every married person in the room knows that it sometimes causes other issues. It causes other troubles. Sometimes we make certain decisions because we think that it will fix all of our problems if we do that. Some of you, I said earlier, you're thinking, if I could only find a spouse, if I could only get married, you will find if you do and you get married, yes, it will be a blessing, but it will create other issues that you knew nothing about, that you could not foresee. Our choices, while they may fix some, often create new ones. They may be good and godly choices, just like marriage, but if we are using them as a way to escape or counting on them to be our Savior, we will be disappointed. So Paul says to them, look, I don't have a command from the Lord on this, but I'll give you my judgment as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it would be better for you to stay single. Because if you get married, it's going to bring on worldly troubles that you can't see right now. That's basically what he's saying. Now, let me give you this one principle to live by. We'll spend a little bit of time here, and, and then we'll, we'll close up shop for today. But this one principle to live by, Paul says from the text, that we should seek to live in the already, even though we are not there yet. That we should seek to live in the already, even though we are not there yet. And this is what verses 29 through 31 are all about. For the believer, our future is secure. Amen? Our future is secure. We, our citizenship is in heaven and we await a Savior from there. We know we live there. Our address is there. We just happen to be here for a short time. It's secure. In a real sense, we are already there. The Bible says that we are seated with Him in glory already. And in Christ we are there. But all it takes... All it takes is that awful, dreadful, isn't it the worst sound in the world, the buzzing of that alarm clock in the morning to remind us that we're not there yet. It it amazes me that that alarm clock, no matter where I am in the bed, that alarm clock goes off. I can swing my arm with great precision and hit the snooze button every time. 
I could be upside down on the other side of the bed and I think I would still hit it because I hate it so much. I don't like to get up. I don't like you people that the alarm goes off, doesn't even go off. You look at your clock, hadn't gone off yet. You got a couple more minutes. You turn it off. You jump out of bed. You begin singing. You begin cleaning the house. A little bit of frustration coming out here from my own marriage. I'm not like this. My wife jumps up out of bed, begins, I don't have coffee yet. Hey, what do you think we should do on this, this project? Do you think we should do this or that? And I say, I don't really know and I don't really care right now. I want to get some coffee. Let me get my coffee first. In fact, let me get two cups of coffee first, right? All it takes is that alarm clock every morning that wakes us up to a world where we still have hard labor, where we still have weakness and pain and sadness and sickness and real suffering and real death to remind us that we're not there yet. But I would say to you this morning that what we believe about what is going to happen there should change the way we live right here. It should. It should make a difference. I don't have to get up every morning and say, bless God for my alarm clock. But I do need to change the way that I view life. It should change the way I approach the suffering of this world. The meaningless tasks of this world. Even the things that I find joy in in this world. It should change it all from the bad to the good. They should be all kept in this sphere of relativity. That all of it compared to what is coming is nothing. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short, for the present form of this world is passing away. The time has grown very short. We don't know how long. We don't know when Jesus will come back. We're not supposed to know when he's going to come back. Because if we knew, we would party like it's 1999, and, 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 and then we, we would, when it came to the time, we would then look for his coming, right? We would, wouldn't we? But because we don't know... We look up. It could be any minute. It could be today. It could be before I say, have a great day. It could be before you finish your lunch. It could be before you lay your head down tonight on your pillow. It could be before you raise your head off the pillow tomorrow. It could be at any moment. This time has grown short. This world is passing away. Quite simply, quite simply, we must be ready. Our relationships, three things that should be altered as a result of living in the already, even though we're not there yet. Number one, our relationships should be altered. This is what he means when he says, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And what he's not saying is that, that a husband who's married gets a pass here and, and should just move out of the house, stop treating his wife with affection, stop fulfilling his, his roles as a, as a husband, stop calling her honey, stop doing all those things. That's not what it means. Instead, 
Well, let me, let, me, let me develop this. He has already said earlier in this same chapter, in verse 2, let the husband give to his wife what is due her. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 says that a husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church. That he should lay down his life for her. So he's not saying, he is not saying that he just gets a pass, do what you want, gratify your flesh, leave your wife and your commitment to her in the garbage. That's not what he's saying. Listen to what John Piper says. It means this. Marriage is momentary. It's over at death. And there is no marriage in the resurrection. Now, that's, that's based on Matthew 22, verse 30. As much as I love my wife and as much as I don't like the idea of, of not being married to her, and I mean this with all seriousness, not being married to her throughout eternity, that's a reality. And some of you in this room, you struggle with that because you love your spouse. And you can't imagine heaven being heaven without them. But Matthew twenty two thirty says they neither marry nor are given in marriage in heaven. John Piper goes on, he says, wives and husbands are second priorities, not first. Christ is first. Marriage is for making much of him. It means if she is exquisitely desirable, beware of desiring her more than Christ. And if she is deeply disappointing, beware of being hurt too much. This is temporary, only a brief lifetime. Then comes the never disappointing life, which is life indeed. What is, a, what is 60 years when compared to eternity? We should, indeed, it should alter our relationships. Now here, we should love the people in our lives and love them deeply. You hear me? We should love them deeply. We should enjoy one another's company. We should delight in one another. We should help one another. We should, we should live and love but not more than we love Christ. And not more than we love the advance of His kingdom. This is what Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, when He said, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Hate? Jesus, really? Hate? My wife, my children, even myself? Jesus is not literally promoting hatred toward one another. What he's saying is, he who does not love me in such a way that it makes all other loves seem like hate, he cannot be my disciple. Living in the already, even though we are not yet, should change our relationships. Secondly, it should change, it should alter the things that we really care about. He says... Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. John Piper again comments on this and he says, Christians mourn with real, deep, painful mourning. Especially over losses. Loss of of those we love. Loss of health. Loss of a dream. These losses hurt, he says. We cry when we are hurt. But we cry as though not crying. We mourn knowing we have not lost something so valuable we cannot rejoice in our mourning. Our losses do not incapacitate us. They do not blind us to the possibility of a fruitful future serving Christ. The Lord gives and takes away, but He remains blessed and and we remain hopeful in our mourning. He speaks on 
rejoicing. Christians rejoice in health and in sickness, both. There are a thousand good and perfect things that come down from God that call forth the feeling of happiness, beautiful weather, good friends who want to spend time with us, delicious food and someone to share it with, a successful plan, a person helped by our efforts, but none of these good and beautiful things can satisfy our soul. Even the best cannot replace what we were made for, namely the full experience of the risen Christ. Even fellowship with Him here is not the final and best gift. There is more of Him to have after we die. And even more after the resurrection, the best experiences here are but foretastes. The best sights of glory are through a mirror dimly. The joy that rises from these previews does not and should not rise to the level of the hope of glory. These pleasures will one day be as though they were not. So we rejoice remembering this joy is a foretaste and will be replaced by vastly better joy. Living in the already, believing that He is coming back and we will live with Him forever should change the way we handle things that we really care about. How many times have you used the word love inappropriately? I'm not talking about when you say to your, your spouse, I love you. I'm not talking about when I tweeted out a picture of my daughter yesterday and, and, and said, I love her so much. I'm talking about when you look at a hamburger and say, I love five guys. I'm talking about when, when, when you, you go to a shoe store and see a particular brand of flip-flops and say, I love Sanooks. Can we really use love in that way? Shouldn't knowing that we are children of God that are being sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ that are one day going to be, be transported from this existence to an existence that is everlasting, fit with bodies that will be fit to be in His presence forever, to be with Him, to know more of Him, to know all of Him throughout eternity, shouldn't that change what we really love and what we really grieve over? Third, the th- Things that we cling to should be altered. Those who buy as though they had no goods and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. John Piper again goes on and he says, let Christians keep on buying while this this age lasts. Christianity is not withdrawal. This is not the idea of asceticism. Christianity is not withdrawal from business. We are involved but as though not involved. Business simply does not have the weight in our hearts that it has for many. All our getting and all our having in this world is getting and having things that are not ultimately important. Our car, our house, our books, our computers, our heirlooms, we possess them with a loose grip. If they are taken away, we say that in a sense we did not have them. We are not here to possess. We are here to lay up treasures in heaven. This world matters, but it is not ultimate. It is the stage for living in such a way to show that this world is not our God, but that Christ is our God. It is the stage for using the world to show that Christ is more precious than the world. So Paul can come to this issue of singleness and whether or not an engaged couple should go ahead and get married. And he can say, I think it's better for you to remain single 
in view of the present distress and the worldly troubles that will come as a result of marriage because you may be living in the, in the now, but there is coming the already. And he says to them, singleness to a world that says, oh, if you're not married, then you're not complete. If you're not married, then, then you're not really fully woman, or you're not really fully man. He can say, you know, if, if, to a world that says, if you're not a parent, then what are you doing? If you're not this or not that, then what are you doing? He can say to them that in Christ, knowing that we are already there, even though we are living here, when we say no to the patterns of this world, to the things of this world, not, not running away from this world, but saying no to those things for the sake of having this mindset, it says to the world that Christ is more precious to me than anything you have to offer. In making decisions, and this is where I'll close, in making decisions, in making God-honoring decisions where there is no God-given commands, we should ask ourselves these questions. Does this matter in the next world or only in this one? If, if I knew, this is another question, and these are just questions I came up with. If I knew I only had a set amount of time, would I still choose this? If I make this decision, does this say to the world, that this, whatever I'm deciding on, is more precious to me than Christ. Church, we are imperfect people. We are justified. If you are in Christ, you are justified. You are right with God. But living in this world, you are not yet conformed to the image of Christ. And you and I will face all sorts of decisions and things will come our way. And we don't, because if, if we're really in Christ, we don't get to make decisions just like the world does. We shouldn't. We shouldn't simply listen to the patterns of this world and say, well, the world says that I've got to have this. I've got to have this particular TV or I've got to have this cell phone or I've got to have this car or I've got to have this style of clothes or I've got to have this or I've got to have that. I've got to have this degree. I've got to have this caliber job. I've got to have this kind of house. I've got to go on this kind of vacation. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Well, we, we don't get to do that. Not if, not if we are being transformed by the grace of God through Christ. He transforms our affections and He gives us minds for the world that is to come. So I would challenge you, consider the present distress. Consider the worldly troubles that may come because of the decision that you're going to make. But ultimately, for this week, seek to live lives that are in the already, even while you're in the not yet. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, there is nothing that I can say to change lives. There is nothing that I can say to call people to you. Lord, I was convicted and convinced this week more than ever. Knew it in my head, but got away from it in my heart. But I know it, God, that if there is going to be any change in us, it will be when the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to draw people to you, to trust you, to repent and trust you. So God, that's my prayer today. God, take your word that's been preached. Holy Spirit, apply it. Draw people to yourself for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.